Amen. Praise God. You know, we, we preach that we, we love our covenant children and that they're a part of our church body from day one. It's good to have them serving among us. That's very important. Well, this morning we're going to continue our sermon series through the Gospel of Luke. Uh, if you have a Bible, grab a Bible and turn to Luke chapter 6. If you don't have a Bible, uh, the pas- passage of Scripture we will be studying, investigating this morning should be printed in your bulletin. However, I would encourage you to bring your Bible. Um, many times that we refer to other passages that are not printed in the bulletin as uh, things come, come to light throughout the week in the last minute editing of the sermon as the Holy Spirit even edits prior to the service. So this morning we're going to take a look at Luke, Luke chapter 6 verses 37 through uh, 42. Hear God's word this morning. Judge not, and you will not be judged. Condemn not, and you will not be condemned. Forgive, and you will be forgiven. Give, and it will be given to you. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over, will be put into your lap. For with the measure you use, it will be measured back to you. He also told them a parable. Can a blind man lead a blind man? Will they not both fall into a pit? A disciple is not above his teacher, but everyone, when he is fully trained, will be like his teacher. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, Brother, let me take the speck that is in your, own, in your eye. When you yourself do not see the log that is in your own eye. You hypocrite. First, take the log out of your own eye. And then you will see clearly to take out the speck that is in your brother's eye. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we need your Holy Spirit to come and to prepare our hearts and our mind and our ears to hear your word this morning. Because in reality, it's not a word that we want to hear today. Most of us don't like your word correcting us and convicting us, but it's good for us. So Lord, what I pray is that you would come and confront the sin in our own lives so that we might be conformed more to the image and likeness of your Son. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Verse 37 is my least favorite Bible verse in the entire Bible. Uh, Any minister that I know of the gospel, this is their least favorite Bible verse in the entire Bible. Now don't get me wrong, all scriptures God breathed and all scripture is useful for teaching, correcting, and training in righteousness so that the man of God might be thoroughly equipped for every good work. And so we're not avoiding it today just because it's not my favorite. Notice we're studying it. We're going to examine it together. But every minister that I know is in agreement with me whenever I ask them, what's your least favorite Bible verse? And most of them will initially say, I love all of them. I say, what about 
Luke 6.37. Refresh my memory, Tanner. And then I say, judge not, lest ye be judged. You can just see this scowl and this frown immediately pop up on a pastor's face. Why? Because this is the verse that we have quoted to us most often. I have had this verse quoted to me by pagans, by atheists, agnostics. I've had this verse quoted to me by meth addicts. I've had this verse quoted to me by people in the church that are known to be in an adulterous relationship. I've had this this verse quoted to me by teenagers in the church that are obviously and visibly rebelling against their parents. And my favorite time is when I had this verse quoted to me by someone I was seeking to disciple, and I was trying to encourage them to begin memorizing Bible verses. And they said, I don't want to. And I said, well, I think it would really help you in your walk with Christ. And they said, judge not, lest ye be judged. It's like, that's interesting. How did you quote that one? You memorized it, okay? So what this passage deals with is the issue of confronting sin. That's really what this passage deals with, is how do we as Christians confront sin in a biblical way? In a biblical way. If we're going to be honest, the reality is most of us don't like others pointing out sin in our lives. It's not fun. It's convicting. It hurts. If I can take you out of the pulpit into the pastor's study and counseling sessions I've experienced over 25 years of ministry, I, that dawned on me yesterday. We were, Jennifer and I were eating with uh, some church planters that are hoping to plant a church in our presbytery and our denomination uh, yesterday evening. And the spouse asked me, how long have you been in ministry? And I had to add up. I was like, since 1996, I had to do the math. And uh, since I'm from West Virginia, it took me a little while. And I realized, 25 years, wow. That's amazing. I didn't think I was that old. I am. Um, over the last 25 years, though, I cannot tell you time and time again that I've had parents of teenagers come in the study and say, hey, I need your counsel. Because I know, I know my children are beginning to wrestle with they're tempted by drug, alcohol abuse, or, or at least sampling drugs and alcohol. And I don't know how to counsel them because the reality is when I was a teenager, I sinned in that regard. And I say, okay, well, why would that be a problem? They would say, well, judge not lest you be judged. Or maybe a situation where they know that they're tempted by engaging in premarital sex. And they say, well, I don't, I don't know, pastor, how to deal with that because... I sinned in that way when I was in high school. I said, why would that be a problem? They quote Luke chapter 6, verse 37. Judge not, lest you be judged. Hear me today. That is a total misunderstanding, misapplication of this verse. And so what I want us to do today is I want us to take a look at three corrections we need to have as we confront sin in a biblical way. The first correction we need to make is this. Don't be heretical. Don't be heretical. That sounds harsh, but there's no other way I know how to be except to, just to be uh, clear and concise in the points I'm trying to make today. The first 
way we confront sin is don't be heretical. Here's what I mean. When people use verse 37, judge not and you will not be judged, condemn not and you will not be condemned, forgive and you will be forgiven as an excuse to not be discerning about what's right and wrong, it's a total misunderstanding and a total misapplication of this passage. That's not what Jesus is saying at all. Now, there are imperatives here. There are four imperatives. Don't judge, don't condemn, forgive, and give. But the context of this passage is not that Jesus doesn't want us prohibiting, making prohibitions about what we should and shouldn't do. Jesus isn't saying that we can't call sin, sin. What he's actually getting at, we're going to talk about in a few moments from now, is a hypercritical spirit. That's what Jesus is condemning. But actually, in this passage, there are two verses where Jesus highlights the fact that we can call sin, sin, and we can call evil, evil. Look down at verse 42. How can you say to your brother, brother, let me take out the speck that is in your own eye. The speck is a picture of some little sin in someone's life. When you yourself do not see the log that is in your own eye. The log is a picture of some big sin in your life. You hypocrite. First take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take out the speck that is in your brother's eye. What is Jesus saying there? For Jesus to be able to make that declaration that someone is a hypocrite, guess what Jesus is doing? He's calling sin, sin. He's calling disobedience, disobedience. He's calling hypocrisy, hypocrisy. That's not the issue here. The issue is this. You and I have no place to stand on someone's funeral day and condemn them either to heaven or hell. That's God's job. Now, we may have a suspicion about where they are in eternity based on the fruit of their life, and we see that in verse 45. It's not printed in your bulletin, but it is printed in the Bible, if you have it with you. Jesus says, verse 45, The good person out of the good treasure of his heart produces good, and the evil person out of his evil treasure produces evil. For out of the abundance of the heart his mouth speaks. What is Jesus saying? You'll know a tree by its fruit. You'll know someone who's walking with Jesus by the fruit of their life. You'll know someone who's not walking with Jesus by the fruit of their life. And so when we go to confront sin in one another's life, don't be heretical. The culture has told us a lie, and the church has bought into it. And the lie is this, you do you, I'll do me. As long as you don't bother me, I won't bother you. As long as you don't bother me, I won't bother you. It's this moral relativism that is just, just rampant throughout the culture. That what's true is true for you. What's true is true for me. And as long as we don't bother one another, there's no place for us to confront the sin in one another's life. That is not what Jesus is getting at in this passage at all. So we're going to talk about a biblical way to confront sin in the church. Don't be heretical. And the heresy is to say that we can't call sin, sin, and we can't call evil, evil. Yes, you can. Do you know why? Because we're not going to be judged horizontally. We're not going to be judged on a curve like I was in college with my, my biology grade. I was glad about that. It's not that, well, you just got to do a little bit better than Pastor Tanner and you get in. No, we're going to be judged according to God's moral law, God's moral standard, God's moral perfection. And unfortunately, even within evangelical church and Bible-believing churches, there are many people that come to church every Sunday or every week. They're involved in the life of the church, and they think that somehow God's going to grade them on a curve. As long as I'm better than him, as long as I'm better than her, I'm going to be in. Let me give you an example. 
True story. A number of years ago, I had a conversation with someone. Uh, I won't name the name of the church. It was an ARP church, so you may know the church. You may know the pastor. You may even know the person I had the conversation with uh, those years ago. But I had a conversation with someone that I really admired and really appreciated. And I was uh, really impressed with what all their family had been able to accomplish over the years. And so we had just kind of a casual conversation. And I'd never really had an opportunity to have that much of a conversation with them and, and ask some questions about what all their family had been able to accomplish. It's been very, very, um, uh, very successful in the business world. So I was trying to glean insights from them, see what I could learn. And it got opened up a door of opportunity for me to, to have a spiritual conversation with them. I asked him, I said, you know, have you come to the point in your life where you know if you were to die today that you would go to heaven? And this person without, it, without hesitation said, absolutely, 100%. I know if I die today, I'm going to heaven. And it was with such enthusiasm, such vibrato and, and assurance and, and no, no hesitation whatsoever. I was really taken back by it and just thought, okay, praise God. And then there was something the Holy Spirit just, just pricked my heart to say, ask the why question. I said, well, do you mind if, if I ask why you have such assurance of your salvation? If you were to stand before God and he was to say, why should I let you into my heaven? What would you say? And this person, I could not believe the answer. They said, why God should let me into heaven? It's this reason. And they went and described all of the accomplishments their parents and grandparents had. And then bragged on the academic accomplishments of their children as well. And I must have, smart, I must have had, had a, some sort of facial expression that they said, you don't like that answer. I said, I'm terrified by that answer. I said, why? I said, the person looked at me and said, you don't think I'm a Christian. I said, well, let me make sure I heard you correctly. You think when you stand before a holy God on judgment day, he should let you into heaven because your family has been successful and that your children have been successful in academics? And this individual said, yes. And they looked at me and they said, you don't think I'm a Christian. I said, with all due respect, based on your answer, I have no reason to suspect you're a Christian. Now, I know what some of you are thinking. Tanner, that's judgmental. The scriptures say, it's unloving not to share the gospel. And they looked at me and said, well, then why do you think I'm not a Christian? I said, because your answer had nothing to do with Jesus. Your answer had everything to do with either your accomplishments or the accomplishments of the people around you. And you're right. Your salvation needs to be dependent upon someone's accomplishments, but the accomplishments of Jesus Christ. That's why the Apostle Paul says, for it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing, it's the gift of God, not by works, lest any man should boast. Was that unloving that day? I would argue with you all day long, and until Jesus returns. That conversation I had that day, although that person thought I was the most judgmental person in the world that day, was the most loving conversation I could have. Why? Because they had believed a heresy. And as we seek to confront sin in one another's lives, we need not be heretical. We must not be heretical. But when you have those tough conversations, you've got to check yourself and say, are you coming in an attitude of love and grace?
And what I did, hopefully to soften the blow a little bit, is I confessed my own sin while I confronted their sin. And so I shared with them how I knew that I was a sinner, and I quoted much of Romans chapter 3 that we affirmed our faith together today using, and told them that I knew that I deserved hell. If anybody in the world deserved hell, it is me, and how Jesus is my only hope. Friends, if we're going to confront sin biblically and be Christians that act like Christians, we got to learn how to confront sin biblically. And the first way we do it is we, let's not be heretical. And then secondly, let's not be hypercritical. That's what Jesus gets at in verses 37 through 38. What Jesus is getting at in verses 37 and 38 are the issues of being a hypercritical person or hypercritical Christian. There are four imperatives he gives. Uh, in verse 37, he says, Judge not, and you will not be con- judged. Condemn not, and you will not be condemned. Forgive, and you will be forgiven. Not that we earn our salvation that way, but, but more in a you reap what you sow kind of principle. Give, and it will be given to you. And then he gives here in verse 38 an agricultural metaphor of you picture someone who's gone to the market and they've taken a container and they're trying to get some grain. He says this, you will have it good measure, pressed down, shaken together. In other words, it's going to fill in every nook and cranny, running over, and it will be put into your lap. It will be spilling over into your lap. And then he says, for with the measure you use, it will be measured back to you. The issue here is not about whether or not we can ever call sin, sin. The issue here is a censorious spirit. How many of you know what that word means? That's an SAT word. It means hypercritical. It means fault-finding. William Hendrickson, a a, a long-time well-known Reformed scholar, said this, The Lord here is condemning the spirit of censoriousness, judging harshly, self-righteously, without mercy. In other words, you will reap what you sow. If we're going to confront sin biblically, we need to come with a humble, repentant spirit ourselves. Rather than a hypercritical, self-righteous, fault-finding, condemning spirit. Reminds me of a true story. There was a minister who was preaching, and there was a, a guest that came to the church that day. And as the minister preached, there was a woman near the front of the church that as the minister preached, she would judge his preaching while he preached and so as he began to preach she would raise her thumb up if she agreed with what he was saying and if he really made a good point that she liked she would raise her thumb up in the air when he said something she disagreed with she would lower her thumb and the more she disagreed that she would raise both thumbs so after the service, the minister was at the patio of the church, the front doors of the church, greeting people like I often do and Patrick does. And the guest was walking by the minister and said, I, I, I couldn't help but notice that while you were preaching, there was this lady down there at the front judging your preaching with thumbs up and thumbs down. And, and, and the guest said, Minister, are you aware of this? And he said, yes, I am. And then they asked the minister, do you know who she is? And he says, I do. And they said, well, who is she? And he said, she's my wife. 
I'm told it's a true story. Here's what I would say. I love you, church. You are the most loving, generous, long-suffering, and patient congregation I've ever served in 25 years. You give faithfully to our denomination and our agencies. You have been known to have pastors for very long tenures, which always says far more about the church than the pastor and the quality of his leadership. It says more about your patience with them. If I could encourage us to improve in one area, though, it would be here. I'm not above criticism or critiques. I have five men in my life that are part of a team that are unpaid, that volunteers to evaluate my sermons on content delivery. I have men in my life that call me and hold me accountable about how many spiritual conversations I have in a week or a month with non-Christians. I have a man who calls me once a month to, to, to challenge me on leadership. So there are five men that speak into my life. And I wouldn't go here if I hadn't been in ministry 25 years, but here's what you do need to know. And I say this not to browbeat you. I say this not to be condemning but hopefully just to disciple over the last two years I have received more criticism and critiques about the ministry of our church the ministry of everything than I have the last 23 years combined now it could be that I'm just a schmuck that's possible. It could be that you desire excellence as much as I do, which is true, and I, that's one of the things I love about you as a church. But I wonder if somehow, some way, a censorious spirit has infiltrated us, and in the Holy Spirit's graciousness to us today, loves us enough to say, when we confront sin, let's be humble, let's be patient, let's be gracious. But if I was to say, to look at over the last two years, most of the complaints and criticisms has had nothing to do with doctrinal matters. It's had nothing to do even with sin. And not, by and large, 99.9% .9 of it has had to do with personal preferences. And I'll have to confess some sin this week. I had, a, had a, I had a dear friend come to me this week and say, you seem a little defensive this week. And I had to confess sin. I didn't, 
didn't think it had affected me in any way, shape, or form, but I wonder if, if, if there is a way that we begin kind of getting defensive with one another and assume the worst of one another, and that's not what Jesus wants for his church. He wants a church that, that's led by a pastor, that's led by officers, that's, led, that's, that's served by people that are teachable, that are humble, that are gentle, that are gracious, that are forgiving. Why? Because that's how Jesus has treated us. That's the gospel. That greater love is no man than this, that he would lay down his life for his friends, that God demonstrates his own love for us in this, that while we were yet sinners, Christ died on the cross for our sins, that in this is love, not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation, the fire extinguisher for his holy, just wrath for our sins. I don't want the Bartow ARP church to be known. I want us to be known as second to none when it comes to doctrinal purity, but I also want us to be known in Bartow as the most gracious, generous, generous, loving, patient, forgiving, merciful, and humble church of them all that will glorify Christ, that will sprinkle salt among the community of Bartow and be a pleasing aroma to our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. We have to be humble, repentant, teachable. And that includes me. And that includes me. The Bible says we confront sin in a biblical way. How so? Don't be heretical. Don't be hypercritical. And then he says, lastly, don't be hypocritical. That's what he gets at in verses 39 through 42. Now, let me quote R. Kent Hughes, a Reformed scholar, and then also, essentially, J.C. Ryle says it in his, his commentary as well. You don't want to miss the humor in what Jesus is about ready to say here. It says, he also told them a parable saying, can a blind man lead a blind man? Will they not both fall into a pit? A blind man can lead a blind man, but if they're both covered up and they both have a mask, eventually they're going to fall into a pit. Make sense? Then he says, will they not both fall into a pit? A disciple is not above his teacher, but everyone, when he is fully trained, will be like his teacher. Here's what you know as parents. You are discipling your, your children. And give enough time, you will see just how great or how bad you have discipled your children, right? Because you will see your strengths magnified and amplified in your children. You will also see your, your weaknesses and your sin tendencies amplified and magnified in your children. Am I right? The same is true in ministry. As Sunday school teachers, as officers in the church, as pastors, as youth pastors, as associate pastors, give enough time that we disciple people, we will see our own strengths and tendencies amplified and magnified in the people to whom we disciple. Jesus is going straight at the Pharisees in verse 40. Because he's basically saying this. Hey, you are making up rules that are in addition to the scriptures. You are making up rules that are in addition to God's moral law, the Ten Commandments. And you're holding people up against the rules you have made. And you're not even measuring up to them yourself. And who is Jesus saying is the greatest teacher of them all? Himself. And so Jesus says the way we deal with sin is we confront sin by confessing sin is what he's going to say in this passage. Now there's only one person in the history of the world that doesn't need to confess sin before he conf confronts sin. Do you know who that is? Jesus. 
Why? Because he was sinless. He was born of the Virgin Mary. He didn't inherit a sinful nature from Adam. And furthermore, he was perfectly obedient to the Father and his, his moral law. And so Jesus is the only person in the history of the world that could confront sin without first having to feel the need to confess their own sin. So don't miss the humorous picture that Jesus is getting ready to highlight in verses 41 and 42. As he says here, do not be hypocritical. Look at what he says in verse 41 and following. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? In other words, he's saying this. How many of you can see this speck of this two by six in my thumb? Anybody see that? By the way, this is basically what the scriptures are saying here in the exposition of this passage. It's saying that imagine that someone has a sinful tendency in their life that is the equivalent of this speck. And then they say, someone comes up to them that has a log in their own eye. And why did I pick a two by six? I could have got a two by eight, but I'm cheap. Here's the reason why. When you, when, when you study this passage of scripture, here's what you learn from the commentators and from the Greek. Then when it's talking about a beam, it's talking about a beam that is large enough that it could have been used as a rafter or part of the joist of a building. Don't miss the humor of what Jesus is saying. Jesus is saying, how in the world could I go up and help somebody get that splinter out of their eye when I have this sticking out of mine? Could I even get close enough to you to see the speck in your eye? No. And so what Jesus is painting here is a very beautiful but humorous picture. When he says here in verse 41, Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, Brother, let me take out the speck that is in your eye, when you yourself do not see the log that is in your own eye. And what does Jesus say? You hypocrite. First take the log out of your own eye. And then you'll see clearly to take out the speck and use in your brother's eye. In other words, get rid of this. And then you'll be able to see clearly. You'll be able to actually help your brother then. Don't miss the picture that Jesus is painting here. This log, is, this beam is a picture of the sin in your life. That's hindering your walk with Jesus and hindering your relationship with your brothers and sisters in Christ. For some of you, this log Maybe in a, an extramarital affair that you've had for years. For some of you, the log in your eye may be the idol of success. And your desire to be wealthy, your desire to be successful in your job has nearly cost you your marriage and your family. 
For others of you, perhaps the beam in your eye is simply pride. You're proud of who you are. You're proud of what you've accomplished. And you've accomplished a lot. But it's hindering your relationship with the Lord. It's hindering your relationship with your brothers and sisters in Christ. And so how do we confront sin biblically? Notice what Jesus says. You confront sin after confessing sin. Confront sin after confessing sin. There's a guy in my life a number of years ago by the name of Bill Rich. Bill owned the the golf course near my hometown, Richwood Golf Course. God used Bill in my life a number of years to really work out some sin in my heart and my life. And it was odd because every time Rich came and knocked on my door, I knew it was going to be a difficult conversation. But after a while, I started looking forward to it. And I thought to myself, why is this? And it's for this very reason right here. Whenever Bill came to me, Bill would come to me with his own beam and he was ready to confess it first and set it aside before he dealt with the speck in my own eye. Never forget it. He came to me one day and he said, Hey, preacher, I got to tell you, I own my own business. And I remember when I used to do all the, the, the lawn work on my golf course, and I used to repair everything, and I made a lot more money back then, and, and the bottom line was better, but it nearly cost me my, my marriage. And finally, I had to come to an agreement with my wife that it was much better for us to ha- have to eat pinto beans a few more days a week than for me to make more money. He set the beam aside after that, and then he said, Tanner, you need to start taking a day off each week. How do you think my heart responded to that criticism? Welcomed it. Why? Because he took the beam out of his own eye before he addressed the speck in mine. He did the same on a number of other occasions. What are we learning today in this passage? How to confront sin in a biblical way. You confront sin after confessing sin. So here's the deal. You've got to secure your oxygen mask first before helping someone else. If you've ever flown on a plane, they say if in the event that the cabin loses air pressure, the oxygen mask will be deployed, and what are you supposed to do? Secure the oxygen mask yourself before you help someone else, lest you pass out. May that be a picture in our minds of how we are to confront sin in a biblical way. We need to examine ourselves first. We need to examine where we are in our relationship with Jesus and spend time before the Lord confessing our own sins, our own failures first. And then go to our brother in Christ. Then go to our sister in Christ. 
or if they're not a believer, we need to spend time ourselves examining ourselves, praying before the Lord regularly about how we were rebellious and defiant and didn't want to hear the gospel before we begin sharing the gospel with others. That, my friends, is how you confront sin in a biblical way. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, for this day and this opportunity to gather in your house. Lord, I am the chief of sinners in this sanctuary this morning. God, any time that I preach in a way that the congregation here may feel as if I'm pointing a finger at them, Lord, I know beyond a shadow of a doubt that there are three or four other fingers pointing right back at me. And so, Father God, I confess to you how we all can have a tendency to be unteachable, to not want to hear the hard conversations, the hard things. Lord, I confess to you our tendency to want to run away from uh, the difficult conversations, the difficult spiritual conversations. But Lord, I pray that you would, you would cultivate among us a people of God that are humble, that are loving, that are forgiving, that are not hypercritical, but, but just constructively critical about the sins we see in one another's lives. Not to harm, not to belittle, but rather to, to heal and to build up and to strengthen one another in the faith. Father, make us that church if we're not that type of church already. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.